Hello, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 43 of X-Lapse, where uh, well, we're going to kick off the number sixes, and we're going to do so with one hell of a book. Now, today we're talking about Marauders number six. Had a cover date on March 2020. The story's called A Time to Reap, so I guess we're, we're still taking lines from that song. Uh, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lali and Mario, De, Mario Del Panino. Colors, Eric Archinaga and Federico Blee. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Head of X's, Hickman. Edits, Robinson White, Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale January 22nd, 2020. Oddly, um, in the credits page, uh, Tom Muller as design does not get credited here. I don't know if uh, that was something they left out or if uh, maybe his deal was only for the first five issues. I don't know. But... We open with a roll call, and uh, the folks featured in this issue will be Pyro, Iceman, Call Me Kate, Lockheed, Bishop, Shinobi Shaw, Storm, and Sebastian Shaw. Then we get a single-page spread of creds. You see, I knew they could do it. I knew they could do it. Now let's just see if they can maybe keep it up. So... We rejoin our comics action on board the Marauder, where douche villains, the hate monger, and the executioner are making their presence known. It looks like by the time we come back here, they've already taken Bobby out. However, the tandem of Pyro and Lockheed, well, I'm assuming Lockheed provided the flame, are doing what they can to keep them at bay. Kitty phases Bobby into the down-below quarters so he can regain his bearings, and she leaves him in the care of Lockheed to look over him. So, uh, I'm gonna guess that he gave Pyro a light first? Eh. Back topside, Kitty phases Pyro out of the hate monger's chokehold and then stabs the baddie in the left shoulder. The executioner responds to this by going to impale Kitty with that weird stick thing that he carries, only she phases, so it phases through her, and actually winds up lodged into Pyro. Now luckily this wasn't a fatal blow or anything, and uh, we're about to discover that it was never actually intended to be in the first place. You see, what the executioner was actually doing here was injecting a teeny tiny little ominous Verende member, uh, this is Yellow Jacket, into Pyro's bloodstream. This is sort of some, uh, kind of, you know, fantastic voyage sort of stuff, and sadly not the Coolio kind. Now, this Yellow Jacket is uh, a fellow by the name of Darren Cross, who I think mostly screwed with Scott Lang. Anyway, we shift back to Madripoor, where we see the little Hellfires discussing how their plan is going. They're happy that their man is inside the Firestarter, which I'm going to assume they're making a Prodigy reference, since we all know Pyro can't actually make flames. Anyway, they're really pleased, since they're sure he'll uncover all sorts of information that many interested parties will be willing to fork over massive amounts of cash for. Which, you know, gotta say, ain't the worst plan. As they look on, 
Bishop and Storm free the upstart with plans of rendezvousing with the Marauder so that they can use its gateway to get the refugees they rescued back to Krakoa safely and speedily. Now, speaking of the Marauder, let's head on back. Now, Kitty is about to cross swords with the Executioner, and she gives us the uh, the quick and dirty on him. He's an ex-fed, big-time anti-mutant bigot. She kind of acts like he's been away for a while, though I could swear I remember seeing him on a bunch of covers during the Blue and Gold years. Uh, Maybe those were just variants. I don't know. Whatever the case, let me tell you a little bit about the Executioner. Now, picture it. 1993. My friends and I were like 100% positive that this goofball was going to be like the next big thing in the X-Books when he he made his first appearance. Uh, Now, this he either showed up in uh, the Uncanny X-Men or the X-Men Volume 2 Annual for 1993. I think it was Uncanny. Uh, This is when Marvel was introducing new characters in all their 1993 annuals, similar to what DC did with Bloodlines. And they even polybagged these and, uh, and... Put a little trading card in there, so Uncanny X-Men Annual, whatever it was for 1993, was polybagged and had a a very collectible Executioner trading card included. Now, the other X-Men book, which would have been been Volume 2 if my memory's right, uh, gave us a weirdo called Empyrene, who didn't look near as cool as the Executioner. So now, my friends and I, I mean, we were veterans of the comics game at this point. We were probably, uh, we were probably fans for about a year, so we were... We had a lot of ex-fandom under our belts at the time, and we thought we knew a thing or two about the trends in the industry. I mean, after all, we read Wizard every once in a while, you know? Uh, no, we were just very, very stupid. Now, whatever the case, I remember buying this guy's first appearance, and for the longest time, I refused to take it out of the poly bag. Uh, for a little bit of context, in the fall of 1992, the Executioner song came out. Twelve issues across four titles, all polybagged with a trading card, right? Those issues I had zero qualms about opening. This really awful X-Men annual, however, I refused <laughs> because I was sure that the Executioner's debut issue would, uh, you know, I thought this was going to be another New Mutants number 87, you know. It was not. Uh, now, this poor Executioner fellow would only show up a handful of times, and he'd always get his butt handed to him when he did. Uh Weirdly enough, they even gave this guy a Toy Biz action figure, and this figure really sucked. I mean, those things had awful articulation and gimmicky triggers as it was. You know, you pull a little trigger on their back, they do a karate chop or something stupid that really hindered your posability, right? You couldn't just stand them up or, or kneel them down or anything. They had these, this stupid lever sticking out of their back or something. But with the execution, is it, they like, took it to another level. Like, you couldn't even bend him at the elbows or knees. I don't even think you could bend him at the waist. It was very, very awful. Like, you could maybe bend his him at the shoulder joint, I think. Really bad. Um, and it was almost like an insult to injury to, uh, to little Chris's Pollyannish forecasting of this dude's overall importance to the, uh, the X-Books and, and comics history as a whole. All right. Enough of him. Let's get back to the book. Uh, Kitty battles back both the Executioner and the Hatemonger before deciding to maybe jump back over to the vessel that the bad guys arrived on to see what's what. She hops over and discovers that this craft is carrying a whole slew of those Russian-powered dampening suits of armor that we've seen a few times over the past few issues. She then phases to the upper deck and sees Donald Pierce. And uh, yeah, I was wondering slash dreading when he'd finally show up. Also, Chen Zhao. 
Now, they're treating this like a very mundane encounter, or the, the bad guys anyway. Uh, you see, they're here on a diplomatic endeavor, and they, they calmly and politely ask Kitty to depart their rig. She does not. They warn that if she were to attack, that'd be akin to an act of aggression against the sovereign nation of Madripoor. Kitty don't care. Uh, she does not want those suits of armor making it anywhere near shore, and so a fight breaks out. Kitty hip-tosses Donald, threatening to toss him overboard. She also punches Chen Zhao square in the mush. As this scuffle continues, the upstart manages to catch up with its sister ship. Pierce comments that it must be nice for Kitty to be surrounded and protected by all these other powerful mutants, which is a seed of a thought that'll come up again later. Now, the hate monger throws, like, a whole duffel bag full of explosives at Bishop, which, I mean, is a dumb play in any case, especially so when it's Bishop, since he's able to absorb the blast and redirect it back at the bad guys. Storm then commands the wind to swoop old Donald Pierce into the drink. Kitty then sends poor Chen in right after. So we've got our not-so-fearsome foursome all bobbing in the drink. Bobby wakes up, and the team reconnoiters while planning how they're going to get all these boats back home. Kitty agrees to sail the Pierce vessel to Magneto's old island M in the Bermuda Triangle. And at that point, Forge, Beast, and Sage might get a better look at these you know, Russian power-dampening suits of armor. We find out here that Forge was actually in part responsible for them existing in the first place, which may or may not be brand new information, I'm not sure. Now the Marauder and the Upstart will head on back to Krakoa. Storm will portal back quickly in order to inform the Quiet Council about the troubles that are currently brewing in Madripoor. From here we get an info page, and this is some notes like a journal from Yellowjacket. And this is a pretty good info page, because... It fills us in on everything that our little pyro occupant is learning on his trip into Krakoa. We learn a bit more about the Marauder ship itself, too, and, uh, you know, I could probably go for one of those old-fashioned cross-sections to better see this. I mean, we got one for Summer House, right? Why not do it for the Marauder? Anyway, this rig is pretty decked out. It's got a hair salon, a nail salon, a movie theater, and wardrobes full of fabulous clothing. All right, back to comics. Dust is settled, for the most part and we rejoin Kitty on the deck of the Pierce vessel. She is soon approached by Sebastian Shaw, who'd been in hiding this entire time. Now, the first thing he does is fire a net at Lockheed to take him off the board. He then greets Kitty and tells her he's brought a handful of Krakoan seeds with him for this confrontation. Kitty suggests that Shaw might find himself in a stasis alongside Sabretooth when this all gets back to the council, but he ain't worried about none of that. Shaw tosses the seeds at Kitty's feet, and they instantly grow into a tangle of vines which crawl up her body and tangle her up real good. He tells Kitty that none of this is really her fault. It's just that Krakoa never accepted her, and so she must not be penciled in on the future of mutantum. He also, well, you know, he, he wants her seat on the Quiet Council to go to someone he can control. Shaw's yacht arrives on the horizon, and so our man prepares to head off. But first, he decides to dump poor, netted-up Lockheed into the drink. Kitty promises that if Shaw saves her pet dragon, she'll just give him her seat. Shaw's like, nah. Then he deboards, and then he sinks the, uh, the ship. So, we're left with Kitty, all entangled in the vines here, just above the surface of the water as the vessel begins to sink. She yells out to Shaw that if she dies, they'll just bring her back. There's no getting rid of her. Shaw? He isn't so sure about that. Oh. Wow, there's a, there's a sentence where my accent kind of gets in the way, and that Shaw isn't so sure about that. 
He suggests that since Kitty hasn't been accepted by Krakoa, maybe, just maybe, the rules of resurrection might not apply to her. So she'll be dead, dead dead, for good. And so Shinobi will ascend to the Red King's seat, and before long, he'll probably have his own queen in white. He'll have an entire quarter of the Quiet Council and will be wealthier and more powerful than ever. He talks some more. Uh, this dude really likes the sound of his own voice. Makes me happy I'm not narrating this. Uh, he talks about, you know, putting everything into place here. Masterminding the plan to get the Marauder Madripoor bound, if you remember last issue. He seemed to know exactly what was going on, and uh, everything seemed to be falling into place for him. He also made a deal with Donald Pierce. He also chatted up Christian Frost about Kitty's perceived weaknesses and how um, maybe Iceman only turned down his offer to travel with him last issue because, you know, Iceman's an Omega-level mutant and he's needed in order to keep poor Kitty alive because, you know, Kitty might as well be a one-and-done. You know, if she's not accepted by Krakoa, maybe she can't come back. She's got to live her life uh, (laughs) only once. And so we wrap up this issue with Kitty sinking below the surface of the water and, well, drowning. And that's that. Next episode, we will be discussing Excalibur number six. But first, let's talk about what we just read. So, another Dawn of X issue. Another cliffhanger threatening a mutant death, which uh, if you've been following along, you know this is something I've come to really get tired of. Here, though, it works. Not only was this issue fantastic overall, but the tired old cliffhanger of potentially killing a mutant actually feels like it matters. Because at this point, and if we pretend not to know what's happening later, we don't know if Kitty's resurrectable, easy for me to say. I mean, if we've seen covers for subsequent issues of this book, we have a pretty good idea, but we'll play along. We don't know at the moment if Kitty's resurrectable. I can't say that word. Resurrectable. And here's the thing. This very likely could open up a whole lot of interesting story beats as to Kitty's relationship with Krakoa itself. I mean, let's not pretend Kitty won't be back. She will be back. And that's even assuming that she actually dies here, right? But if she is dead and is resurrectable, we might get a few answers, or at least hints, as to why she's been, like, disallowed from passing through the portals. You know, maybe that'll open up some more information. Maybe we'll find out some stuff about Mora. Who knows? I'm looking forward to it. This was probably the best Hoxpox take on Kitty I've seen to this point. She wasn't overly abrasive, and she wasn't drunk or play-acting drunk. She was scared, she was angry, and this was all very, very well done. Let's hop across to the uh, to the bad guys here. I'm really liking this Hamane's Verende team. Uh, we're actually getting real villains, and not just, like, nameless mercs or monsters of the week. Imagine that. I mean, we're actually using established X-Men lore and X-Men villains to pose a threat to our mostly unkillable-for-long heroes. The tandem of Executioner and Hatemonger, silly as they are, work quite well together. I mean, they're both bigoted douchebags, which I suppose makes them sort of low-hanging fruit, but they're established low-hanging fruit, and it makes 100% complete sense for them to be wrapped up in the Hellfire Tot's plans. Now, this version of Yellow Jacket, not a character I know all that much about, but the way they utilized them here was perfect. Implanted into Pyro, who's taking the Marauder back to Krakoa, thereby not having to step through a portal. There's really something cool here in the uh, Yellow Jacket journal info page, right? He mentions something that he'd been led to believe that mutants wanted to exterminate humanity, 
but just from spending a bit of time in and with them, maybe he's not so sure. He, seemed, he says that they seem to be a lot more chill than he was expecting. And uh, so, I mean, it begs the question, could he be coming around? I, I suppose we will have to wait and see. What's cool about this, though, is that we learn that Verendi is using propaganda in order to recruit people to their cause. And not to get all real world on us here, and I think I've said something along these lines before, though I couldn't pinpoint exactly when because, you know, I talk a lot. Let's, for a moment, put ourselves into the human's shoes for a minute on the 616, right? It's easy for us as readers who know and love the X-Men to see them as being completely heroic and hate those who fear and hate them. But, again, let's pretend that we're humans in the 616 for a minute. Mutants have declared not only their sovereignty, but their superiority. Ominous Verende then stokes the flames by propagating that the mutants might not be quite as peaceful as the bald dude in the weird helmet says. Stands to reason that this could very easily get into people's heads and make them very scared. I'm pretty sure I'd be scared. So, in playing off those fears, and as we learned last issue, offering cash prizes, Verendi is able to recruit willing participants to their cause, who are mostly worried about self-preservation rather than relying on an intrinsic hatred of mutant kind. So you don't need bigots. You just got. You just need people who are scared. So this is just so well done on so many levels. I, I mean, and then, I mean, we have Yellow Jacket here. He's showing a little bit of a doubt about the veracity of what he'd been led to believe, which might just be the first crack in the armor. But it's a hell of a place to start, right? I mean, this fantastic stuff. Overall, I loved this issue. I feel like I'm saying this a lot when it comes to Marauders, but this might be the best issue yet. So, a uh, heck of a problem to have, right? <laughs> a series that gets better with every installment? What year are we in? I mean, this doesn't feel like current year. Oh, boy. But, uh, yeah, I love this issue. I hope uh, everybody enjoyed hearing me gush about this issue. But uh, that's about all I have to say about this issue for now. But before we go, let's do a little bit of digging in the mailbag. Okay, we'll start with Damien, who is discussing X-Force number 5 here. And he says, I'm not a big fan of gore in my X-Men comics, but if they insist on doing it, I like them to go over the top. This issue is approaching Lobo levels of cartoon violence. I do like the idea of, ha of half a Wolverine chasing people down, um, and I like the idea of sticking him together like a broken plate. As you say, the whole plot relies on the villains being very stupid. And yes, the, the visuals here with Wolverine, I mean... The look on his face as the top half of him impales one of those Mercs or Xenos or whoever the hell they were. That was very, very funny and definitely uh, almost like evocative of Lobo uh, in in just the look of that panel uh, as, as well as, you know, the tone of it. Um, I did like them sticking him back together. I thought that was cool. Uh, the Mercs, though, the, 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 that was so bad. Um, the... The Mercs or the Xeno people or whoever they were, they were just, like, really, really dumb here. I mean, you'd figure a group of, like, paid mercenaries would, I don't know, maybe do a little bit of homework on what they're doing here. It's, I mean, this is Wolverine, right? Who in the Marvel Universe doesn't know Wolverine? I mean, hell, who in the Marvel Universe does Wolverine not know himself? It seemed very, very strange where maybe any other... Half a X-Man, I would consider fair game for maybe not knowing the 
potential for destruction and violence. But I mean, it's Wolverine. That's that should be the guy. That that should be like the the Ace of Spades card in the uh, in the Who to Avoid list for uh, for X Men bad guys. But uh, Damien continues. Despite all of this, despite all of this, it's never going to be for me, and I'm not warming to it as a whole. Biggest problem remains the out-of-character dialogue. I'm continuing to see the authorial voice overwhelm Beast and Jean in particular. And yeah, it's so very forced. Um, I mentioned when we started this that all I knew Ben Percy from was a run on Teen Titans that I was compelled to write about for a couple of years. And that was not very good. Um, It was actually... It was actually something I came to dread every month. When I knew that Teen Titans was coming out on a particular Wednesday and the comp would arrive in my email box, it was just like, how many different ways can I say I don't like this, you know? Um, without, you know, being you know, being a dick about it, you know? I didn't want to... I didn't want to say anything about the guy, but it was just not a good book. It was not a good fit, I feel like he has like a handful of character archetypes that he really likes to write. And then he kind of just forces them on whatever characters that he's actually being paid to write. Whether it fits the characters or not, it really doesn't matter. It's just the way it's going to be, unfortunately. And that's that's kind of how I feel about his Beast, especially. Uh, I think the Beast is probably the uh, the one with the most damage from this uh, this kind of writing. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Can't wait for tomorrow's Fallen Angels. I know you say it's your least listened to, but I think you do a really good job of explaining how and why it fails, and more people should listen. They're often your funniest episodes, too, but I do have a slightly perverse sense of humor. Well, thank you. (laughs) I definitely wish more people would listen to Fallen Angels episodes. Uh, Heck, I wish more people would listen to all the episodes, but uh, Fallen Angels, they really need some listener love. That's for sure. Um... Those are days where I think I, I think I'm a little bit looser <laughs> because I am I just know nobody's listening to it or very few people are listening to it and it's one of those things where I've said it before I mean all these episodes are free but I still feel like I'm ripping people off for their time when I'm doing a Fallen Angels issue because there's just so little to say um, so I try to try to keep it as light and as fluffy as possible <laughs> in order to make it. At least somewhat engaging. Uh, maybe when I finish the sixth episode, I'll release all six as a massive, co- you know, collected for the trade episode that uh, nobody will listen to. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, Damien. Um, next up, Jason Colby writes in. He says, I finished my catch-up binge read and binge listen, so now it's time for my binge email. Here are a few things I've thought about while listening to your podcast that I feel like subjecting you to. First, Swords. It's been great fun listening to you take note of every sword alluded to or shown on panel in every Dawn of X book. To tell more would be spoilers, but those of us who are reading in Marvel real-time, and currently well stuck into the X of Tens event, know what I mean. And uh, this is one of those things where I thought, like, kind of like the uh, the Apocalypse A thing, I, I worried about it becoming like an old joke, like... like I was being overbearing and people would be like, oh, this idiot, can he just stop? <laughs> so I... I thought maybe I'd be a, I was being a little bit overbearing, like perking my voice up every time a sword would show up or be referenced to. Um, and uh, I'm thinking here, like I'm trying to do my my calendar. I'm not good at calendars. Uh, I am the guy who 
during my first year blogging, I had 13 days of Christmas because I didn't know how to read a calendar. So that, that, this is all with a shake of salt here. But the way that this show is going, if everything continues the way it's going to and allotting for space for other projects, I think we'll hit X of 10s by mid-January. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed that I know how to read a calendar, and also fingers crossed that things keep up this way. So by then, we'll have all the sword stuff paying off. Uh, Jason's next point, Brian Edward Hill. He says, you know how there are some comic authors or artists who do phenomenal work, but but you feel bad about liking them because in personal relations, they seem like giant a-holes? Well, Brian Hill is the opposite of that. He's just about the nicest comic creator on Twitter, but has lately been producing work, including Dawn of X's own Fallen Angels, that just doesn't get my engine going. He has a penchant for endless scenes of conversation that are clearly supposed to be deep and meaningful, but really just make me feel bored and nauseated. I do recommend his Marvel Killmonger mini, which was an exploration of the villain character from the Black Panther movie, and especially his Vertigo American Gothic series, which somehow tackles the state of race relations in current year U.S. in a way that doesn't make me want to run for the hills and become a hermit. He's also the writer on the DC streaming TV show Titans, which I've heard that some people like. So now I kind of feel bad. Uh, (laughs) I feel... I'm happy to hear he's a nice guy. But that really makes me feel bad about dogging his work here. Um, I mean, you mentioned comics creators on Twitter. And I'm really only used to knowing current year comics creators by which half of the country they claim to hate (laughs) on Twitter. Um... I'd have to I'd have to keep an eye out for some of his work. I know I've mentioned that I have his his complete run of Batman and the Outsiders, but I haven't read it, so I don't know how that is. But again, that also heavily features Ra's al Ghul, who I cannot stand. So maybe one of these days I'll make a point of uh, of checking out one of those Batman and the Outsiders issues. Maybe do a blog post about it um, just to keep me honest <laughs> and give me and make it a multitasker, right? I can't read things for fun anymore. It has to be for another purpose. Um, But, uh, yeah, I'll have to keep an eye out for some of his work. Uh, Though, if I were to uh, subject myself to the Titans show, I'd need, like, a truckload of Xanax. If if it's the show I'm thinking of, which is the F Batman show, is that the one? As if it is. Yeah, there's probably little possibility of me watching that, ever. (laughs) Uh, Jason continues, Queen and Captain... I'm going to gently disagree with fellow ex-lapsed correspondent Damien. While I know just enough of UK politics to understand that the Queen is generally uninvolved legislation, I don't know why I don't know that it's so relevant to Captain Britain. As I understand it, Captain Britain gains her powers from a magic amulet and a metaphysical relationship between the island of Great Britain and the mystical land of Otherworld. While parliaments are all well and good for passing laws and negotiating trade agreements for mutant pharmaceuticals, it seems to me that all this mystical stuff is far more at home in the world of kings and queens than in the barristers and bureaucrats. It's hard to imagine her royal whiness, Opaluna Saturnine, having tea with Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn. So I'm okay with Betsy meeting directly with Liz, too, and not the backbenchers at Westminster. I didn't know who any of those people were. Uh, (laughs) And I I can totally see that. The Queen is as good a point of contact as any. Though, I say that not only as an American, not only as an ignorant American, but as a willfully ignorant American. Uh, (laughs) I don't pay attention to the politics in my own country, much less globally. Uh, I I view politics as theater, you know? Um, I feel like 
Washington, D.C. has been in gridlock since long before I walked on this earth, and it'll be the same way long after I'm not. So I see American politics as, as a lot of theater. Um, so for someone like me, uh, who, you know, uh, Teeny Howard might just be writing for someone as ignorant as me, the Queen works just fine. Though, that said, I definitely can see how someone from the U.K. or... England or Great Britain or whatever I'm supposed to call that might raise an eyebrow at such a thing uh, being being a thing. Uh, Jason continues regarding X-Men number four. This is one of my favorite Dawn of X issues so far and have been looking forward to hearing your coverage of it. Part of the reason I like it so much is that it deals directly with the issue that most interests me, how the new Krakoa mutants and the human world are coming to terms with each other. Yes, the mutants sort of kind of come across as villains. Yes, the humans more than kind of sort of come across as villains themselves. But I can see the validity of both sides of this inevitable conflict, and this rising tension is something that made Hawks and Pox so special. Charles and Eric have founded a nation. I want to see it act like a nation. And I'm glad that, that we're bringing this up today, because uh, we I, I spent a little while before talking about the humans in the 616 and how, how as readers we have this... I don't want to say knee-jerk reaction, but we have, like, our heart is with the X-Men, right? I mean, whether we've been reading forever or just a little while, we know that the X-Men are who we should be rooting for. So we have this sort of preconception about the humans in that that they are going to be the villainous side here. And we can't always explain why. You know, I remember reading, like, the old Wizard magazines back in uh, the 90s, and the, or the old, any, any sort of promotional thing that the X-Men would have, like the Pizza Hut X-Men special comics from, like, 92, 93. They would always have, like, a list. It's like, oh, here's the, the X-Men's ten worst enemies, and, like, you'd get to number two, and it would be Magneto. And it's like, well, who could be number one? And then you turn the page, and number one is humans. <laughs> it was always humans. It was so heavy-handed, and it's like, well, humans hate them and fear them, and yada, yada, yada. In this situation, I, I as I mentioned earlier, discussing the ones that uh, that the uh, the little Hellfire Club are, you know, putting into into the position. I think a lot of it is a uh, self-preservation, right? The humans here, they're worried. And the mutants here, they are also worried. So it's like acts of self-preservation are almost bound to make anyone look somewhat villainous because you're looking out for yourself, right? It's it's maybe not necessarily screw the other guy, but it's I'm worrying about myself. If they come along, that's great. If not, I'm worried about me. In this uh, little summit here, neither side came across all that great. And uh, something that kind of got under my skin, but I understood it, was that it was almost passive aggressive? The uh, I mean Magneto quoting Huxley, and it's like, come on, dude. Uh, I, I felt like it was almost passive aggressive, and I think I came away from that issue more uncomfortable than anything. And uh, this this Dawn of X run I mentioned before has a has a penchant for uh, low hanging fruit, you know where. Of course, it's going to be the the dumb American. It's going to be he's going to be the one who's going to be the the mustache twirling bad guy. And uh, I don't know. I don't want to say that was lazy, but I, I think it was a little too easy. Uh, back to back to Jason. He says, unless I'm mistaken, this issue also features the very first time in the Hickman era that we see Charles remove his cerebro helmet. So this issue also marked the death of my Charles Xavier is the maker theory. And of course, the maker 
was uh, Reed Richards from the Ultimate Universe, if I'm remembering right. Uh, Jason continues, I still haven't figured out why Hickman hid Professor X's face from us until this moment, if this really is just plain old Charles Xavier. This seems like it should have been a bigger deal. Maybe Hickman was just messing with us. And it's funny you mention that, because I was actually going to comment on that during the episode, but I wasn't sure this actually was the first time Xavier was seen without his headwear. You know, and I, but I think you're right. Um, I, I would have to pull out the issue of X-Force where he, you know, pops out of his gold ball to see if he was wearing, or not, not to see if he was wearing a helmet, of course, but to see if they showed his full head or if it was, you know, hindered in some sort of a way like it, like it has been for so much of this run. But I think you're right. And yeah, I don't know why they waited so long if it was just going to be plain old Charles. It seems very strange. Um, Jason continues And the menu from the meeting Watermelon watermelon gazpacho and all that Is one of my favorite data pages in all of Dawn of X Every time I see a data page I ask myself Is this an object that would really truly exist in this world? This menu passes the test with flying colors To me it makes the world feel much more solid and three-dimensional Than what we get pretty much all other you mentioned that along with the comics you uh, sorry, you mentioned that along with the comics themselves, you like to collect posters and other ephemera that exists alongside the comics. If you lived in a world where Krakoa were real, wouldn't you like to own a copy of the menu from the first meeting of the Krakoan Council and the great and good of the International Order of Davos? I know I would, and yes, yes, your point is well taken here. If I frame it that way. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I never considered the data page as ephemera or a commodity. Um, I see the data pages as information that they don't feel like drawing more often than that or or a way to meet a page quota that they otherwise wouldn't. But to look at it through a different way here and see this as um, something that could exist in the real world, yeah, yeah, definitely. Your point is 100% well taken. And yes, that is something I would definitely like to own. Uh, for sure, especially if uh, you know it has like a the ring from a bottom of a champagne flute on it, maybe the little condensation ring. So it's it, it'd be a lived-in piece of ephemera. Uh, Jason continues the upstart. Thank you for calling out how the name of this boat connects to Shinobi's past exploits. That comes from a bit of X history I haven't read and is something I didn't pay the slightest attention to on my initial Dawn of X read-through. It's nice to see such connections between this new status quo and what's come before. So when you notice such things, please keep pointing them out. And yes, uh, that's, you know, seeing and pointing out these old references is some of the funnest stuff about doing this show. Um, I mean, not only do I just, am I just a sucker for that thing, sort of thing, it's uh, also further... um, Validation that these things actually happened, right? That was the thing I was worried about when we started this. And I mentioned shoes dropping until, you know, my tongue almost fell out. But I was always worried that we were going to find out that certain things didn't happen, certain things happened in different timelines. When we get stuff like this, these callbacks, that's just further, it's more concrete that these things actually happened. And uh, I love it. So I will always point those things out. And uh, it's some of the funnest part of this, especially on Marauder's Day, since this seems to be the book that ha- that's like most proud of actually having a history, right? <laughs> I mean, there's hardly an issue of Marauder's Goes By where I don't get tickled by something, by a nod to the past. So that's, that's very, very cool. Jason continues, the hate monger. I didn't know who the hate monger was. I don't know who a lot of these characters are. So after reading Marauders number five and seeing online who the characters in the cliffhanger were, I went and Googled hate monger. 
Hatemonger is ridiculous. That's all I have to say about that. And, uh, yep, <laughs> he sure is. What I think about when I think of the Hatemonger is a poster that Marvel put out probably 1989 or so. And it's this giant poster featuring just about every Marvel character. And uh, they give you a picture of it in all Marvel comics. And, of course, comics were printed on newsprint back then, so you don't really get a good look at, like... It's not a high-definition picture, you know? So if you wanted to actually see it, you'd have to buy this giant poster that has all the characters on it. And in the ad, it would say, it's like... Buy this and find the hate monger. It's like, hint, he's the one in the middle. So it's like, uh, that's what I always think about when I think about the hate monger. Um, other than the fact that he is, uh, you know, pants on head ridiculous. So yes. Uh, he continu- Jason continues. In his coven. Speaking of ridiculousness, you seem to think it was at least a little bit ridiculous that in Excalibur number 5, Apocalypse referred to Richter Gambit et tal as his coven. I thought this was a nice parallel with the coven Akaba. As, as has that has been working for Morgan and against Apocalypse's interest all this time. He seems like the kind of guy who, if his enemy has a coven, he wants to have one too. And I can see that. I can see that. Apocalypse is a fairly self-important dude who, uh, who would probably want to have what his enemy has. It, I guess it just felt a little stilted to me. But then again, Excalibur as a whole feels pretty stilted to me, so... Mileage may vary. <laughs> uh, Jason continues, Dragonfire. When it was revealed that Shogo's Dragonfire is something that can weaken the wall separating our mundane reality from other world, I flipped back to the issue to s- where this happened to see what it looked like on the page. Surely the art would have contained hints that something special was going on, that this was the very fabric of magical space-time being rent asunder before our very eyes. Nope. Just some very standard-looking green flames that make the bad guys run away and let the good guys escape. This feels like a missed opportunity. In contrast, when we learned in a data page in X-Force number 2 that Professor X had been tracked to Krakoa by a homing device, whose likely source was the champagne or crab cake appetizers from the Sokovian Treaty Ceremony, I flipped back to that ceremony as depicted in X-Force number 1, and son of a gun, but on the bottom of page 21, we can see something very suspicious looking in Charles' champagne flute. Call me greedy, but this is the kind of tight continuity and attention to detail that I want to see more of in these books. And yes, that's a great call-out. That's an awesome call-out, and I... Looking at it now, because you did include a picture in your your message, uh, looking at it now, the attention that they paid to it, I should have seen it. (laughs) I definitely should have noticed it, but I missed it. I totally missed it. That's an awesome call-out. And I'll admit, uh, sometimes I do skim the info pages. Sometimes they're a bit much, so (laughs) I apologize for that. But no, that's an awesome call-out. And definitely a piece of tight continuity that uh, these books could use more of, uh, for sure. Uh, Jason wraps up his message with, That's well more than enough for me, so I'm going to wrap up. Until Magneto finds himself stuck to a refrigerator, make mine X-lapsed. And uh, thank you so much for all your thoughts. That's that's some great stuff. I, I love getting... I love all these messages. It's it's probably the, the most fun part of the show is uh, being able to talk to folks and uh, and compare notes. It's it's very, very cool, very, very satisfying, and uh, really means a lot to me, more than I can put into words. We have one more piece of mail to do here. It's from Al Sedano, and he just read House of X number 6, so episode 11. He's got one more to go before the Dawn of X reaches him. He says, just one more to go, and it's time to dive into the first Dawn of X trade after that. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. There's a lot of stuff in this issue alone. 
First of all, there's Xavier's speech. Damn, it's something like Xavier would say, but if Magneto had, given, had been given the chance to rewrite it. Now I can see what you're saying, looking at the speech from the point of view of the humans in the Marvel Universe. The irony of it is, it's their fault. They could have accepted mutants and had, and had them work with them in the current societies to stop the evil ones and subjected the same laws. But they didn't. And yes, 100% true. A lot of chickens coming home to roost here, for sure. Uh, Al continues, Now we know who everyone is on the Quiet Council, except for Emma's pick of the Red King or Queen. From just being on Twitter, I think I know who that is, but I'll see if I'm right before saying anything. I do want to know why on the info page, their empty spot and Krakoa's are both shaded the same way. Don't we already know that Krakoa's there? And yeah, that is weird. I actually had to pull out the issue again to check. And uh, yeah, they both have like uh, they both have like hash lines going through them. It's very, very strange. Um, yeah, Krakoa is not an unknown entity at the table, so that's strange. Um, and I'm trying to remember who I had picked as Red King or Queen. I think even at this point, maybe not at this point, but early on, I assumed that it might be uh, Mora herself was going to be the Red Queen. But uh, no, <laughs> that was not the case at all. Uh, as it, when you get to this episode, you'll know, especially this episode, because uh, the Red Queen kind of dies here. Uh, Al continues, just like you, I must have missed when Sinister went crazy. I hope someone who's been reading the last few years has written in to let us know when this happened. And I'm thinking back, and I think someone did write in and said that he was depicted this way or in this manner during the 2015 Secret Wars. So that either happened or I dreamt it, which would tell you a lot about my dreams. <laughs> They're pretty sad, I guess. But, uh, yeah, Sassy Sinister, I want to say it was Secret Wars, and I also want to say, because, I mean, Hickman was... 2015 Secret Wars, so maybe, maybe that's where it comes from. Uh, Al continues, Speaking of Xavier and Magneto acting more like one another, it's weird how Mags was the first one to agree with Jean's law of kill no human. I would have thought Xavier would have been first. I wonder if hearing about that law would placate most of the human population. And I had, I had the issue out already, so I double-checked this, because, not because of this scene in particular, but because I could have sworn the law was kill no man and not kill no human. And in re rechecking the pages here, it looks like I was both right and wrong. Gene indeed says kill no human. However, the actual info page that decrees the laws of Krakoa simply says kill no man. And I believe I called that into question after Magic had asked if any of her alien pursuers were human in New Mutants number 5 to see whether or not she's allowed to kill them. So I guess it's still sort of nebulous. Uh, it says kill no man on the, on the decree, but kill no human during the meeting... I don't know. Uh, now, as, as for Xavier wanting to agree, I remember being very uncomfortable during this scene and uh, almost feeling like Xavier was a little in over his head. Like he didn't, he didn't really know how to run a government. So I think maybe here he was just sitting back and watching the government take shape without much of his own intervention to see just, you know, what this council he put together is going to do and what they'll say without him putting his thoughts out there because what he says pretty much goes right so i think he was just maybe giving them a little bit of autonomy in deciding uh what's going to stand uh what they're going to allow to stand on krakoa uh, al continues 
Regarding your question about Krakoa having some, some kind of stasis tubes, in Giant Size number 1, it was holding the original X-Men prisoner in something similar, so this really isn't much of a stretch. And yes, that's totally right. Uh, I believe Lamar wrote in uh, back in the long ago to mention this, uh, and I totally neglected that myself, despite the fact that probably like three months ago I did a, like a long-form review on, on Giant Size on the blog. So yeah, I totally spaced it. <laughs> Um, Al wraps up with, finally, about Damien's feedback in this episode. Husk and Archangel once had sex in midair in front of her mother, so I don't think those two have much shame. As for his comment about Storm having rejected godhood before, acting in a high priestess capacity isn't really the same as far as I see it. Also, most of, those, most of the time those were offered to her by villains, so as much as she was rejecting that, she was also rejecting them. This situation might be different. And I have to pull up the old script to see what that is. And uh, in doing so, I realized how long the script for episode 11 was. It was like nearly 30 pages. Oh, boy. And probably probably very long. Um, I think it was a long episode, maybe like close to an hour. Um, I think this was a reference, if I'm not mistaken, to the Greg Pak Storm series, which came out around the time I started to, like, nope out of the uh, X-Men solo stuff. So I really can't speak to that. I don't know if uh, maybe Damien can help out. I don't exactly remember um, that. Or actually, I, I, not that I don't remember it. I just don't plain, I plain don't know it because I, I wasn't reading that. Um, and yes, <laughs> Husk and Archangel bumping uglies in front of the Guthries. Yeah, we really didn't dis- deserve the majesty of the Chuck Austin X-Men, did we? I mean, that was, that was something great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think I think I mentioned this probably a couple episodes ago. The the whole thing with them being nude, I took that as a reference to or a nudge uh, about like the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You know, they had no shame there. They were uh, they were just kind of living the way they were. You know, before they found shame. So maybe a sign of uh, of innocence in their rebirths. I don't know. But uh, but yeah. There was that. Uh, I'll close out with uh, one more to go, and I'm definitely looking forward to your thoughts on Powers of X or Powers of Ten. Maybe I'll finally start calling it what it's supposed to be. No, I probably won't. Powers of X number six. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll you'll give us like a full rundown of your Hoxpox experience. Um, if I'm remembering right, and I'm pretty sure I am because I think I cited this a couple episodes ago, uh, I was a little bit underwhelmed by Powers of X number six. While I absolutely adored House of X number six, and kind of wish it'll ended here, but definitely looking forward to that, and uh, also looking forward to hearing from other folks out there, seeing what you guys think of what's going on then, now, or whenever in the X books. So if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find all the show notes and stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. The Xlapsed page is xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can find the Facebook group at 90s X-Men and the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. So, I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Uh, Next time, we will be talking about Excalibur, which will hopefully be a better time than the last time we talked about Excalibur, but uh, no promises. (laughs) They're making me no promises, so in turn, I'm passing the savings on to you and making no promises myself. But, fingers crossed, we'll hope for the best. Now, for those listening in real time, the next episode of X-Lapsed is going to be something a little different. A little different, a little special. It's going to be a little spin-off that uh, 
we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. I hope people enjoy it or tolerate it. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'm definitely looking forward to hearing folks' thoughts on the episode that will come out on Sunday. So, with all that said, one more giant thank you to everyone for listening and writing in. It makes so much of this worthwhile. I can't even put into words what it means to me that uh, that there are folks listening and uh, taking time out of their day to uh, to interact and engage. It really, it really makes me feel good. So thank you all. Thank you all so much for sharing your time with me. But until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh